We're continuing our look through the book of Galatians. And I want to tell you the story of Helen Goff. Well, not really her story. I don't know if you know who Helen Goff is. Goff, she is P.L. Travers, an Australian author who moved to Britain and began to write books. She wrote books before that as a child. She was published in some poetry things in Sydney. And before she moved, she uh, was actually quite well known and then was a Shakespearean actress at one point. But what she's most famous for is her book about the quintessential British nanny, Mary Poppins. Now, I don't know much about the eight books that she wrote about Mary Poppins, but I do know that Disney made a movie about Mary Poppins. And I know that towards the end of her life, she wasn't very happy with that particular movie and wasn't quite happy with it when it got made either. But I know that I enjoyed that movie and my children enjoy that movie. And so that's really how I know the story of Mary Poppins. She was the quintessential nanny. Now, the interesting thing about the movie Mary Poppins is that in it, Jane and Michael Banks want a new nanny. As a matter of fact, their nanny has ran off. And so they write a letter to a nanny, an, an ad, so to speak, so that they could have them come. And it goes like this. Wanted a nanny for two adorable children. If you want this choice position, have a cherry, cheery disposition. Rosy cheeks, no warts, play games, all sorts. You must be kind, you must be witty, very sweet and fairly pretty. Take us on outings and give us treats. Sing songs, bring sweets. Never be cross or cruel, never give us castor oil or gruel. Love us as sons and daughters and never smell of barley water. If you won't scold and dominate us, we will never give you cause to hate us. We won't hide your spectacles so you can't see. Put toads in your bed or pepper in your tea. Hurry, nanny. Many thanks. Sincerely, Jane and Michael Banks. Now the reality is, is when we have a guardian, a nanny, someone, is we want someone who will fit this description. Pretty, kind, witty, Take us on outings, play games, don't get cross with us, don't discipline us, don't get on to us, make it easy on us. Now what we know from Mary Poppins is that she was those things, but so much more. She was bigger than that. She was fun, but stern. As a matter of fact, she would say she's practically perfect in every way. Paul here is explaining what the law is. And in it, he is describing a guardian. Now what we recognize is the Judaizers, the ones who have come into this gathering, this place in Galatia, he has been, they have been saying that you can't be just a believer in Jesus, a follower of Jesus, you also have to follow the law of Moses. And for the last couple of weeks in the story of Paul that he's been telling, and the story of Peter that he's been telling, and the story of us that he's been telling, it's saying, no, it is Jesus plus nothing. Jesus alone. That we are in Christ. But the law existed. The law is there. So what is its purpose? And he tells us the purpose is to be a guardian. 
He even puts it a little bit more dominating in saying you were enslaved or a prisoner, so almost a jail, a way to set boundaries around us. And boy, doesn't that sound about right. We look at the Ten Commandments, we look at the laws of Moses, we look at even the laws of our land, and we begin to think to ourselves, these things are only here to squash my freedom. They're here to box me in. I'm so much more than these things. If they just let me be free, I would be okay. But the reality is Paul is telling us that it's a guardian, that it's there for a purpose. It's there as a boundary to hold us in. Why? Because it's anticipating something. It's looking towards the freedom that we're going to receive. Now, it's not causing us to not have freedom. As a matter of fact, it's showing us how we will, in our own hearts, attempt to grab freedom that's not really freedom. How we, in our own hearts, will attempt to go towards what we think will be fulfillment, which is, in fact, even more deep, dark prison. And so what Paul wants us to know before anything else is that he calls the law our guardian, our nanny. But it's just for a time, just for a moment. Now, when Michael and Jane Banks get older, they don't need nannies anymore. They go to school, they go to primary school, or they go uh, off to college, and then they have jobs of their own, and their nanny's not following them around anymore. Just like us. Now, that doesn't abolish the law, except that we know Christ says, I've fulfilled all of the law. That's what what Paul tells us here, too, in in the passage that we've read. Listen. For if the law was given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be from the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come, and we are no longer under the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God. In Christ, we move from this place where we need a guardian to maturity where we are without a guardian. Not because we no longer need it, not because we are not obligated to those things, but we are not obligated in the way of boundary. We are obligated in the way of worship. We're not obligated in the way of, oh, it reveals to me just how bad I am at keeping these things, but that I can't wait to do some of these things because of the joy that God has given me since I'm in Christ. It moves us from a place of shame when we don't do what's right to a place of celebration knowing that Christ has done all and now I can step into the places where he's completed the work. But he tells us even more than that. He says, in Christ, we've moved from the flesh to the spirit. He he looks at it and he says, the external things that define you, those things that make you the particular person that you are, are not your identifier. As a matter of fact, he, he, he breaks down all sorts of socioeconomic boundaries that might be present. What does he say? 
in Christ, those who are baptized, there is now neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male, there is not female. For you are all one in Christ. What he's saying is that in Christ, nothing keeps us from unity with one another. There's not anything about our particularness that should keep us from the other person in their particularness. That we can acknowledge each other's particularness, where we're at, how we were raised, what our backgrounds are, what our genders are, who we, where we work, what our family makeup is. We can acknowledge all those things, but understand that they are not the things that make us who we are completely. They're just particularness. And we each have our particularness. But my realness, my identity, my truth self is in Christ and Him alone. That all of who I am, all that I possess, all of my particularness gets submitted to Christ so that when God looks at me, He sees Christ. Which makes me not under the guardian of the law anymore. But under one who does as Christ does. I like books. I like to read books, and books change. Books' language changes. When I was in school, I had to read Beowulf. I could hardly read it because it was in this sort of weird cross between English and German, and I, I, I don't know what it was. I, I really, and we'd have to write essays on it, and so I'd just sort of make things up. And then we had to read Canterbury Tales when I was in school, and, and that was like old English, and there were words that I couldn't quite grasp or get because language changes, language moves and shifts. And a lot of times when we read passages like this, we see him saying there's neither male nor female, but then he continues to refer to son, son, you're a son, you're a son. And we can think to ourselves, does Paul have a disconnect here? Is he missing something? What about the women? What about the women, we want to say? The reason why Paul is using son here is his point is not about son and daughter. He believes all of us are God's children. It's about that second step, which is heir. To be the heir of God. To be the one who walks in Abraham's line. And see, when Paul was writing, women couldn't be heirs. They weren't the ones, daughters were not the ones who would receive the blessing. It was only the sons. And so what Paul is saying here is, there is no longer male nor female, but all of you are sons of God because you're heirs of what he is giving to you. It's an amazing thing that he's doing here. He's completely turning the way the world works upside down. Remember earlier in Genesis and Galatians 1, he says to us that Christ came to deliver us from this evil age. And remember, the evil age is about separation. And he's saying, no, you're all together in Christ. You have been moved to that way. So you'll notice that next week, when we sang it last week, there's a song that we sing called Son of God. I'm a son of God. Love is my freedom. I can ask anything of my father, the king. I'm an heir. I'm adopted. My brother is Jesus. I'm a son of God. When we're singing that, Andy and I, the first time that we sang it here last week, we, I came up to him and he looked at me and I said, do you think maybe we should change that to child of God? 
Should we change that to child of God? Just so we're not excluding anybody because we want to let, you know, our finer, fairer, stronger sex know that they are part of this. But when we come to this passage, we recognize that Paul is saying, no, son is not son as in male or female son. Son is son as in heir. Receiving of the blessing of God. That everyone is included in that. Because we have broken down anything that can separate us, anything that can keep us from unity in Christ. It's a beautiful thing, really. Now, we still might change it to child. That doesn't weaken what this means in air. And so what does it mean then when we step into this place where we're heirs? It says that by the Spirit, because remember we've moved from the flesh into the Spirit here. right? We've moved from the law, the guardian, into Christ in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, he tells us. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons, heirs. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into your heart so that you could cry out, Abba, Father. Now, we're not talking about the sweetest supergroup, Abba, there. We're talking about Daddy, Father. And it got me thinking as I was looking at this passage, the many ways that we say the word Daddy in our life. One of the best ways that we say daddy, the way that I, I love to hear it most often, is when I walk in the door after being gone and I hear daddy, daddy, arms outstretched, waiting to be held. Daddy. We say daddy with joy, with anticipation. Sometimes, I can hear calling out in the dark of the night, Daddy? Daddy? Because there's been a noise or a sound that has scared them. There's been lightning strike, maybe, that has shined through the window. There's been something that's fallen or I've bumped into the wall because the lights were out and it's scared them. And we say, Daddy, with fear. Not knowing what's coming, not knowing what's happening. Sometimes we say, Daddy, Daddy? <laughs> Dad? Are, are you sure about that? We question. I hear that, sadly, quite a bit. Dad? <laughs> are, are you sure about that? And we can say that in a questioning way. Are, are you sure? Sometimes we hear daddy this way. Dad. Dad. There's a sense of disgust in it, a sense of I can't believe you just did that. Usually it's when I'm dancing. I hear that. Dad, come on. Stop. Stop. And we say it with disgust. Sometimes I hear it like this. Daddy. Daddy. I just I need a little bit of money. Daddy. I need, I need some shoes. Daddy. And it's from a place of need that we ask. We cry out and say we, we need. Maybe the worst one to hear 
when we hear the word daddy being cried out as the one that's, Daddy! They've stubbed their toe or they've fallen off their bike. Daddy! They've scraped their knee and there's pain that is present. The reality is that all those are daddy. (laughs) Every one of them. And we are the same. That when we speak to the Father, the the way that the Spirit has enabled us to cry out, Abba, Father, is in joy and in fear and in questioning and in disgust and in need and in pain. And know this, hear this, that our Daddy is big enough to handle all of those things. He's big enough to handle our joy to handle our fear, to handle our need, to handle our pain, to handle our questioning, and to handle our disgust even. He's big enough, and He knows. And where do we receive this power? It's through the Spirit. But not just through the Spirit. We know that Jesus Himself cried out for Daddy in Mark 14 as we relive and retell the story of Jesus the God-man who walked on the earth. We see him in his prayer in Gethsemane. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. There it's a cry of desperation. right? A A cry of questioning. A cry of pain. So when you have that cry, when you have that need as a child of God to cry out in that way, know that you are not alone. Know that Christ Himself did it. You see, the Spirit confirms and causes us to claim and proclaim our space as children and heirs. What's so beautiful about it is it can remind us of how the father and the prodigal son responds. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? When I was away, someone came and preached on that. Now the most interesting thing about that is the the stance of the father. Now with the prodigal, the son that's run away, the son that when he's sitting there uh, throwing out pig slop, says to himself, my my dad's servants eat better than this. I'm going to go home. Number one, that's not a confession. He's not confessing his wrongdoing in that. He's saying, my dad's servants eat better than me. They shouldn't be eating better than me. I'll go home. He's not recognizing at that point his bad. Now, he does say very quickly afterwards, I'll go home and ask just to be a servant. Sometimes we get to our place of repentance through recognizing our sin. And it's a hard place to recognize. But more than his interaction with his son who comes back, who he says, you were dead, but now you're alive, right? And and he gives them all the blessings. Is his brother who comes. And and we give the brother a hard time. The brother is like, come on, I've been here all along. And the thing is, he'd just forgotten his dad was his dad. His Abba, Father, because his dad says, I I was with you, all of this was yours. All of this is yours. All of it has been yours. You've had full reign, full possession. 
of this. But the key in that is that the father was always, always at home. Always there. Always ready. Always prepared. Always hearing the call out of Abba. He looks at him and he says, all of this has already been yours. Not by your external actions, not because of the things that you've done, not because of the rules that you've kept, but by the simple fact you're my son and heir. And we are the same. One of the amazing things about Mary Poppins is that the kids fall in love with her. They want to spend all their time, and why would you not? I mean, you're jumping into chalk drawings, and you're up on the rooftops of London, and you got this, you're laughing and floating in the air, and all sorts of crazy things. We, she wouldn't get a working with children's. Uh, <laughs> But what Mary Poppins recognized is that they didn't need the nanny. They needed the father. What Paul says to us here is we don't need the guardian. We need the father. And what the father says is, I'm listening. Cry out to me. I've made the way possible. I've made the way possible. Let's pray. Lord God, hear these words. Let them be yours. If they are not, pray that they will burn up. But if they are, we pray that they will take root in our lives and that they will bear good fruit and bring you glory and honor. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing together in response.